Thank you, choir, praise team, orchestra, and all the others who made that a special moment of uh, singing praise to the Lord. Every year on Good Friday, something takes place in the Philippines that should never take place. Men and some women are nailed to crosses with uh, three-inch nails, while others whip themselves across the back with metal chains until the flesh is torn and they are bleeding profusely. They flagellate themselves. They do this as acts of penitence, seeking to emulate Jesus' suffering and death in order, in their minds, to seek forgiveness for their sins. And in their ignorance, these poor souls sadly seek to do what they cannot do, and that is pay for their sins. And what is even sadder is that they miss the whole point of the Savior that they're seeking to emulate. As we gathered here on Resurrection Morning, the story we are celebrating this weekend is the greatest story that has ever been told. It's the greatest story of all stories in the human race. And while time does not permit us today to look at every facet of the story, I want to focus upon an aspect of the story that is usually not emphasized at Easter. At Easter, we don't usually look at this. And so I want to talk about this morning an aspect of it, and that is what happened to us as believers when Jesus died and rose and ascended 2,000 years ago. If the people in the Philippines could understand this, it would change everything for them, and it would set them free, as I think it will for you if you can really grasp this part of the story in a message I've entitled, In Union. Our text is Ephesians 2 that we read for our scriptural call to worship, so I invite you to open your Bibles there. I'll not read the main text all the way through again, but we'll be working our way through it in the message, as well as looking at other scriptures along the way. You know, usually Easter is given to talking about the historical fact of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and then the invitation of God for people to repent of their sins and place their trust in Christ for eternal life, which is true and which is central. But here in Ephesians, Paul reminds us that more was going on that day than we can fully understand or even imagine, more than meets the eye, and it's imperative that we come to try to see at least some of what this means, that is, that as followers of Jesus, what was taking place for us. While we talk on this day about what happened to Jesus, we must not miss what happened to us who are believers 2,000 years ago on this weekend as well. And so what God invites us to understand and to see is something greater than perhaps you've ever imagined, and so I want us to look at that. So in this passage, Paul emphasizes for us two great truths that stand in contrast to one another. And so I'll just follow his thought pattern on this day and deal with two points in the message. I know that that shocks some of you who are maybe a Baptist and used to that, and I don't alliterate if you're visiting with us, so uh, get over it. So, two points. First of all, in this passage, Paul begins by reminding us that we were worse off than we knew. As we enter into chapter 2, he uses two sentences to talk about the awful condition of humanity and the glorious intervention of God. And so verses 1 through 7 in Ephesians 2 is one long sentence. He doesn't put the verb until later in the sentence. 
And then the second sentence is verses 8 through 10. First, he describes our lives before we were believers in Jesus. He does not negate our worth from creation. We are made in God's image, all of us, and we're valuable. He does not negate our emotions or our feelings like love for one another as being legitimate and real. He does not negate our ability to appreciate beauty or to display certain outward virtues. But in regards to our standing with God and in relation to our spiritual condition, he presents us as being absolutely hopeless. And so look again, if you want, in verses 1 through 3. As for you, he's talking here to Gentiles, but he also, in verse 3, says all of us, and he is a Jew, so he's talking about all of humanity. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who has not worked in those who are disobedient. We lived among, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following the desires, its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's our utter ruin that he is describing there for all of us as human beings outside of Jesus. That's what we were like before we became Christians. What does he say here? He begins by saying we were dead spiritually toward God. Dead spiritually toward God in our transgressions or trespasses and sins. Now the word transgressions or trespasses means that we overstep the boundaries. We got out of the way. We got off of the path. The word sins from harmatia means that we missed the mark. We didn't just miss the bullseye. We missed the whole target in our lives. We missed what God intended for us to be. And so we were then, he says, living as well according to the standards of this world, you'll notice. What that means is we were just people who were following along in the world in its rebellion against God. And the Bible says that the world is on a collision course with God in relationship to judgment. First John says the world and its lust are passing away. And so we were spiritually dead, we had left the path, we had missed God's intention for us, we simply went along with the world the way it has been. He goes on to say we were under the power of the devil, we lived according to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who has not worked in those who are disobedient. He says we were also enslaved to the, our flesh, our fallen minds in verse 3, we, we lived among them gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And finally, he says, we were destined for the wrath of God. We were destined for hell. Now, according to God, that was our condition. And it is the condition of anyone who does not know Jesus Christ. You may have a great appreciation for beauty. You may have feelings of love. You have value in that God made you in his image and creation. You can experience a lot of life In good ways, you can do good things, but in relationship to God, that is the description of anyone who does not know Christ. Dead in transgressions and sins. The word dead means dead to God. Yet we were living in sin, walking in that way. And so in this diagnosis, it is so bad that we were powerless to save ourselves, to deliver ourselves. That is why the religions of the world outside of Christianity, inspired by evil spiritual powers and invented by men, 
they're described as ignorant systems in relationship to God in the preaching of the New Testament church. If you go to the book of Acts chapter 17 where Paul goes to the great ancient city of Athens, the most educated part of the world at that time. And he goes to Mars Hill to speak to the philosophers who were there. And Paul begins to lay out the case that we're all made in God's image. But God cannot be served by us. He doesn't need us to serve him. But he says, I see in your city you have all these idols to all these gods. And he says in chapter 17 and verse 29 in his preaching to the ancient world, he said, therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. And you notice in verse 30, Paul says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. That is, all of this religious expression is ignorance. It is ignorant about who God is and about your own condition. And then he says, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And so in light of the work of Jesus Christ and what he had to do to deliver us, any other way of trying to come to God is ignorant because you do not understand the depth of the problem in your life. Not only was it ignorance, but it was also willful ignorance. These people were offering their own remedies, as people do today, for what they perceive as slight problems or minor sicknesses or mortal mistakes. But the text reminds us that before we knew Jesus, we were like the walking dead. That's what we were. We missed the mark and that we did not live up to what we should be. We transgressed by acting and thinking in ways we should not have. We did not love God or others as we should. We held grudges and did not forgive. We were full of wrangling and dispute. Our tongues were full of evil, quick to get into arguments, strife, selfishness. We shaved the truth and lied. We did not give all that we should and stole. We made ourselves the center of things and not the Lord, and thus we were idolaters. We lusted for other people in our heart and for things. We hated people in our hearts, and Jesus says that is committing murder. We wouldn't forgive. We can't be forgiven unless we're willing to forgive. We sought to fill our good desires in wrong ways. And so in all of that, we transgressed and we sinned. And we were people who were destined for wrath under the mighty hand of God, not alive toward God, not really wanting God, trying to devise our own ways to come to God because we did not realize the depth of our problem that we have. And so as John Stott put it, we were both rebels and failures. And that is what we were. And that is what the world is apart from Jesus That is why when we see these poor souls in the Philippines seeking to emulate even Jesus in his suffering, or people in America adding morality to their lives and even invoking the name of Jesus, it appears ridiculous in light of the diagnosis that God gives about us right here. We were too fallen to save ourselves and too fallen to even want to save ourselves. We were dead and did not realize it. That's what I was like before I came to know Jesus. You know, a lot of people don't realize that. We're like uh, Bruce Willis years ago in that uh, creepy movie, The Sixth Sense. You remember that movie? And he gets a shot in the beginning, 
And through the movie, he's helping this other little boy in relationship to him seeing dead people. But what Bruce Willis does not realize until he comes home and sees his wife and the wedding ring on the floor, her playing the tapes of their wedding, and finally comes to understand that he's dead. And he didn't know he was dead. And the Bible says that's what we were like apart from Jesus. And so the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus took place because we were, as one old hymn rightly stated, guilty, vile, and helpless we. That's what I was like before Jesus. Only Jesus makes it different. And so then Paul turns and gives a great contrast. It should be a contrast for us as believers today to leave this room with great praise and adoration and confidence and freedom in knowing what God has done for us in Christ. And so he secondly tells us that God is more gracious than we can fathom. We were worse than we knew, but God is more gracious than we can even fathom. And so in stark contrast, he lays beside that diagnosis the remedy. And what does he say took place? Go back to Ephesians chapter 2. He says here in our God's work that in verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God is more gracious than we can fathom. Christ died. Paul says he was resurrected. Christ ascended. Christ was seated, called his session in the heavenly places where he reigns and rules right now. That is all true. But here's what we need to see today. There is more to it than that. It also is something that happens to us in Christ. Here Paul begins to bring before us and to ask us to consider something that Baptists ignore, many Protestants ignore, and that is the doctrine and the teaching of our union with Christ. Have you ever considered what he teaches here? He is saying that when Christ died, we died with him. When Christ was raised, we were raised with him. When Christ ascended to heaven, we ascended with him. And when Christ was seated in his session of ruling, we were exalted with him. He is not using this simply as an analogy or an example to describe the benefits of being a Christian. No, he is saying here that this is the reality for us as believers. That something has happened for us and to us and in us that only God could do. And notice that wonderful contrast. He told us how bad we were. But in some translations it says in verse 4, but God. And I like that. But God, he says, because he is rich in mercy, that is, God has pity on helpless creatures like me. And because of God's great love, and later in the passage he says, God's great kindness, he has done this for us in Christ Jesus. 
Now the question is, what does it mean to talk about me being in union with Jesus? How are we to understand this? Sounds kind of esoteric, doesn't it? To say that I'm in union with Christ. Well, on the one hand, there is an element of mystery to it. If you go to the book of Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul talks about marriage and husbands loving their wives, in verse 25 following, and he talks about our union in marriage, that husbands love your wives, give her up as Christ gave himself up for the church. And you notice in verse 28, he talks about our union in marriage. In the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their what? Own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. There's that idea of our becoming one in marriage. He talks about in verse 30, for we are members of his body. And so he goes on to talk about the man leaving the woman to become one flesh. And then he says in verse 32, this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church, Christ and his people. There is a mysterious element to this that we cannot fully understand. But somehow what Paul is saying is this. Somehow spiritually and mystically, when we become believers, while not losing our identity, I'm still me as Don Cox redeemed, or by coming into union with him, not being so overwhelmed by him and his great power, but him gingerly working with me in union. And at the same time, while I do not become divine, I'm still completely human. Somehow still, I'm spiritually in union with Jesus to the point that his very life and his very experience is shared with me. So while there is a mysterious aspect to it, in the Bible it is illustrated for us in some ways. One is the illustration that is one of the verses of our church, John 15.5. 15.5. Can you say it with me? I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. I walked out of my house. I have trees everywhere. And I was afraid with the drought that I was going to go out and have some big trees dead this year. But you know how I found out they're all alive you know how I found that out? Because they're putting out leaves. Because there's life pulsating through them. Just like a grape is produced by the vine abiding in the branch. And life is produced in that. Our union with Christ is pictured in that way. It is pictured as well by the idea of Christ living in me. I'm still me. But Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. You say, I'm no longer dead spiritually. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. So Christ lives in me. I am abiding in him. I am in union with him. Jesus talked about it in this way, that the Father and the Son will come and make their abode or live within us. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 14, verse 2, that God would do and Christ would do for us? John 14, 2, Jesus said um, that, uh, that the Father would come and make their abode with us in that way. 
It's verse 21, I'm sorry. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. In that same passage, he talks about his love and the Father abiding in us in that way. The fruit of the Spirit takes place because the Spirit of God lives within us. This is a Trinitarian type of thing. The Bible says that because the Spirit of God lives within us, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, self-control. That's produced in us. We cooperate with that, but it's because He is living in us, our union with Him. The Bible says we are baptized by one Spirit into His body. We're immersed or united into the body, the church of Jesus, of which He is the head. And here in this text we have read, in Ephesians, we are so in union with Him that when He rose, we rose. When He ascended, we ascended. When He sat down to reign, we sat down with Him. We are in union with Him. Something has happened inside of me. So often in Easter we focus on that which takes place outside of us, forensically looking at what Jesus did, what God has provided. This is teaching us that it goes much deeper about us, something that takes place in us when we become Christians and are united with Jesus. Recently I saw, again, part of the movie, A Walk to Remember. You all know that movie, the tearjerker movie, uh, with Mandy Moore playing the Christian girl, Jamie, with leukemia. And she eventually dies. In the movie, a rogue guy comes into her life, Landon, who later is inspired by her and he turns into a good guy. And he wants to go out with her. Her father is a pastor and he doesn't want her to go out with him. But he comes and appeals to her dad who finally lets her date Landon. And she has this list of things that she wants to do in her life. And one of them, she said, is I want to be in two places at once. And so on the first date, he takes her up to the state line there in Virginia. And he tells her to come out of the road and he tells her to stand here. And she says, what are you doing? He said, you wanted to be in two places at once. You're in two different states, straddling the line in that way. But you know, Paul says, for those of us who have faith in Jesus, we're in several places at once. Now, I'm still here right now physically before you. And you're physically before me, unless our senses are not working right. Which is possible. But here, Paul is saying, somehow, spiritually, mysteriously, mystically, with the spirit of the great God who created everything, who is spirit. Somehow we're united with him in such a way that when Jesus died on the cross, I was with him. When Jesus rose, I was with him. When Jesus ascended, I was with him. When Jesus began to reign, I was with him. That was pictured this morning as well in baptism. When I baptize these folks before we baptize them, they've already trusted Christ as Savior. But we're saying that 2,000 years ago, when Christ died, I died with Him. When Christ rose, I rose with Him. I was caught up in that with Christ when I placed my trust in Him. And so, what are the implications of this truth? Well, let me touch just upon a few today before I close. First of all, because of this truth, we are counted righteous. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, 
one of the great verses in the Bible. One of the verses in the Bible every Christian ought to have memorized. And if you don't, though, I want you to turn to your text in the Bible there. If you don't have one, there's one in the pew in front of you, or you can pull it up on the internet or your uh, app or whatever. But in Romans 8, verse 1, and I don't print the scriptures out on the screen because I want you to learn to use your Bible. I want you to learn to look up the Word of God. And I want you to read Romans chapter 8, verse 1 out loud with me. Are you there? Therefore, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? In Christ Jesus. That union with Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for us. We are counted righteous. That is, we are perfectly righteous. And in union with Christ, so as to say that we will never be in trouble again. You know those people in the Philippines who are nailing themselves to crosses or having people nail them to crosses. And beating their backs until they would bleed. They missed the point here. They're trying some outward union in some way. But what the Bible says is that salvation by faith is an inward union. And many on this side of the world miss it as well. Seeking to say, I believe in Jesus, but also I keep carrying a sense of guilt. I keep carrying a sense of sin and condemnation of needing to try to fix it with God over and over and over again. That is not the gospel. The good news is that we are in union with Him and everything is now permanently well once you're in Christ. We were caught up in everything He did and we are in union with Him. E.B. Hill was a favorite preacher of mine, one of the great preachers of the 20th century, I got to hear him on a number of occasions when I was in seminary. We had a conservative club. He pastored out in Los Angeles. And we could not get conservatives in the chapel at the seminary then. So our club, we um, would bring people in like Dr. Hill for a luncheon every week to address as many students as we could. And while they didn't let him preach in chapel, one day we got him outside with speakers and he he preached an open air message. He was a great, great preacher. And I'm not going to try to emulate him because I cannot. But he preached a sermon once at the Southern Baptist Convention in which he was talking about traveling in the Middle East with Jesse Jackson. They were going into the Middle Eastern countries there, Iran, places like that. And so Dr. Hill got to go along and he was in Jesse Jackson's entourage. He says, it's a pretty big entourage. And he said, along the way, when I was in Jesse's entourage, I might get separated from him, like at the airport. And I was back there in the line, and they were moving on. I didn't think I was going to get on the plane. I was dealing with security. And he said, hey, Jesse. And Jesse turned around and said, uh, he's with me. And he said, I went right through. We got into those Middle Eastern nations and security was very tight. And sometimes they didn't know who I was. And I got separated from Jesse. And he'd say, hey, Jesse. And he'd look back and he'd say, he's with me. Let him through. To great dinners they would go to. Which there were leaders of the other nations there. Hill said, sometimes I would be held up by somebody. They didn't know who I was. 
And he said, I would yell, hey, Jesse. And he would turn around and he would say, he's with me. And he said, you know, by being with him, it opened every door. And I got through every obstacle because I was with him. He's with me. And you know, Jesus Christ is saying to those of us who are believers, we'll never be condemned again because we're with him. We're in union with him. And everything that he has done, we've been caught up in it together. That's why if you become a Christian, all of the burden of your sin can go away. One of the great old hymns that we used to sing, At the Cross. At the cross, where I first saw the what? Light. And the burden of my heart rolled away. Maybe this morning you've got a burden on your heart of your sin. In Christ, it can roll away as it did for me and many people in this room many years ago. But not only are we made righteous being in union with Christ, two other things we see here, just summarizing quickly, there are many more. But we're also now empowered by Christ's strength. We rose with Christ. We died with Christ. So we are righteous. He's died for us. We died with Him. Our sins have been punished. Then Christ rose. And somehow we're connected to His resurrection. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do everything through Him that is through Jesus who does what? Who gives me what? Strength in my union with Him. Or if you go to the book of Romans, chapter 8, in verses 9 through 11, Paul talks about it this way in relationship to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in our union with God through the Spirit. He said, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. That's union with Christ. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life. Because of righteousness. And that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Because of his spirit who lives in you. He's talking about our lives now. Not our future lives. He's talking about our mortal bodies right now. Someone has described this union with Christ here in relationship to this idea. Like somebody... Uh, breathing into us if we need mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. That is, if I collapsed up here, I hope some of you would, with a breath mint, <laughs> would come and breathe life into me if my heart stopped. I used to not worry about that. But if my heart stopped, there's a defibrillator back there as well. Make sure somebody <laughs> that uses it, that they're trained. I, some of you I don't want using it on me. It's breathing in. And when somebody does that, you know, when somebody's heart has stopped, they're literally sharing their life's breath with us. And so in union with Jesus through his spirit, he is now giving us life. And power in our union with Him. That is why I can work freely now in faith and serve the Lord with joy because I know He is empowering me. That is why I can see my life. I'm not perfect yet. I still mess up, but I see my life changing. 
as He is breathing life into me, as the fruit of the Spirit is being produced in me. I'm seeing divine life breathe into this body so that I can grow to be like Jesus. And furthermore, I can have the power to overcome that walk of death. And if I endure with Him, I will have ultimate victory. Jesus said, in this world you shall have trouble. Take heart, I have overcome the world. And so in Him, I've overcome the world. So whatever trouble I'm facing, God is breathing life into me to deal with it and to be an overcomer. And thirdly and finally, I want you to see this in our union with Jesus. We're also reigning with Him. We were raised with Him, remember? And we ascended with Him. And Paul says we were seated with Him. That means Christ is reigning The point is, while I'm not yet literally in heaven, by my union with Jesus, I'm already seated and reigning with Him. Now, there is the promise of this fully for us in the future. You remember in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, right about the time Jesus was getting close to uh, being uh, in His uh, time of His death, bearing resurrection, And the disciples were arguing about the future, what they wanted. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, in verse 29, He says, I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on what? Thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I'm royalty. I have royal blood. Because Jesus Christ is the King. And I'm in union with Him. And so while this will come to fruition literally for me someday, because of my union with Him, this work is seen as already done. And that I'm already reigning with Him. It's like an embryo. An embryo that has the life given to it by God at the moment of conception. And all it's going to take is for time and growth of that embryo for a full-blown adult to develop. And we have this assurance that we're already kings and priests with Him. Do you see yourself in that light as a follower of Jesus? You're righteous. He is living within us. In union with Him, we're being empowered by His strength, and nothing can ultimately defeat us. And by being in union with Him, I'm already reigning in heaven with Christ. I am absolutely safe and secure and free. And so for us then as Christians, Easter then is not just about what happened outside of us. No, in union with Jesus, it is about what has happened to us and in us. And you and I ought to be the most joyful, most optimistic people on earth, no matter what we're facing no matter what we're going through, because we are in union with Jesus Christ. And we're celebrating that on this day. You remember what Paul said in Colossians as we bring this to a close. Similar sentiments in Colossians chapter 2. In verses 6 and 7, he says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him. There's union. Rooted and built up in Him. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Notice verses 9 and 10. He says, for in Christ 
All the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And notice verse 10. Would you read it with me? And in Christ you have been brought to what? Fullness. Have you ever seen that in your Bible? You've been brought to fullness in Jesus Christ. Well, that's my story because that's his story. If you're a Christian here today, isn't it a wonderful thing to celebrate that? That ought to enhance our worship, our service, our desire to grow, our ability to grow, our peace in our lives, no matter what we're going through. I'm in union with Christ. But then we began with another group who was not in Christ. And maybe that's you today, and you're here, and you've not stepped over the line and given your life to Jesus. You've come here because you may believe outwardly that Jesus was God, that he lived and died, that he rose again, all those outward things. But you know, you can believe every aspect of that in your mind and miss eternal life. You notice what Paul says back in that passage in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, for by grace, in verses 8 and 9, you have been saved through what? Faith. Grace means a gift. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not from yourselves, it is the gift of God not by work, so no one can boast or brag. The question then is not simply do you believe what happened 2,000 years ago. The question is, have you been raised? Have you met Jesus in that way? Have you been one that has ascended with Jesus, seated with Jesus? Has God done a work in you? That comes by faith, by trusting Him. You must receive Him. It is a gift, but like any gift, it must be received. You say, how do I receive it? You open your heart up and say, Lord Jesus, I am worse than I knew. I am spiritually dead. I am caught up in the ways of the world. I'm under the power of the devil. I'm on a collision course with you in judgment. But I believe what Jesus did 2,000 years ago was for me, and it is my gift. Lord Jesus, save me, forgive me, and put me in union with you. And change my life. You can do that right here this morning. You can call on Christ even as we're singing in just a moment. Jesus, only Jesus. Call on Him to be your Savior. And then finally, if you say you're a believer, have you identified that you belong to Him publicly in the waters of baptism? Are you in union with Him to the point that you outwardly say, I am am united with Him. I'm in the union with Jesus. I'm a union man or woman, boy or girl. Have you trusted him in that way to follow him publicly in baptism? Would you stand with me as we sing this morning, Have Thine Own Way, Lord. Father, now we ask you to drive home these truths into our heart. Help those of us who have trusted you, knowing that we were worse than we knew, but you're more gracious than we could understand. Rejoice today, Lord, in our union with Jesus and grant us great joy and freedom as we live this place, as we walk with you. There are those who need to trust you, to call upon Jesus. Help them to do so even now as we sing. Have your own way in their lives as they open their heart to you. Accomplish what you want, Lord, if there are others who need to become a part of this fellowship. We just thank you for this great resurrection day and all that you've done for us. And all that you're continuing to do, we pray this in Jesus' name.